If you've been watching the HBO show Industry, you've probably asked yourself how these characters could possibly love the world of banking. Come on, this is critical business. Is there a patient dying on a table somewhere? Hey, what the fuck are you doing? There's a lot of yelling. People get coerced into doing unknowable doses of drugs to impress their clients. Do you know how strong these are? Yes, he says, lying confidently. Craig, Craig, no, please. Just don't take two, just take half and see what happens. Coworkers threaten to kill each other. Everyone is doing whatever is necessary what to get ahead. About? People are just knots of fear, okay? We loosen them, we win. This isn't utopia, this is par. And there is zero sympathy if you fall behind. The show can be extremely unpleasant, but two seasons in, I love it. I feel sympathy for these people, even though their lives seem horrible and they can easily just opt out. And I'm not quite sure why I care so much about them. My colleague Henry Mance, the FT's chief features writer, has a theory. The characters in industry, you know, they love money. They love the idea of success. Some of them have come from wealthy backgrounds. Some of them have come from from poorer backgrounds. But for them, the city is... um, as one of them puts it, the ultimate meritocracy, that here is a place you go and test yourself. And they're really ready for that. And a lot of people watching the show will be slightly repulsed by banking, but they'll also be kind of sucked in by this idea that it is really a a gladiatorial environment. It is a place where people go to slug it out with all their talents and, uh, and all their energies. After season one, Henry wrote a piece about industry. And then a totally unexpected thing happened. The show's creators DM'd him on Twitter and invited him to be a character on the show. I kind of have often thought that journalism could be more authentically played on screen. And then like, yeah, obviously someone comes into your uh, like uh, Twitter DMs and says, go on then. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, I want to do this. Today, I talk with Henry about industry and his experience being on it. The show is part of a trend. Like Succession and Euphoria, it depicts a pretty harsh version of the world we live in. So why do we love it? Why do we keep getting sucked in? Then I hand the mic to Lucy Kellaway, who was a very popular columnist for many years at the Financial Times. She interviewed star psychologist Esther Perel at the FT Weekend Festival, and we're bringing that conversation to you. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Before Henry became the FT's chief features writer, he was a political correspondent, a media correspondent, and yes, he also reported on finance. He started at the FT as an emerging markets reporter. So when we invited him on to talk about industry, we knew we could trust his assessment of how true to life the show is. And we also knew he's an excellent critic. Henry, hi, welcome to the show. Hi, Lala. Um, So we are here to talk about Industry Season 2, which aired in the U.S. earlier this summer. It just aired in the U.K. First, can you tell us a little bit about what the show is about? Yeah, it came out a couple of years ago, um, the first season. And it's about a group of young graduates going in to be trainees at an investment bank and sort of living this fast, wild life of investment banking but it's also about being young and about possibility and about trying to find your way in the workplace, which I think is um, something that will resonate to people who, what, you know, whatever career they've gone into, it's that moment when you're like, hold on, am I an adult? 
are these people the adults? Am I meant to be doing what they're doing? Um, and it does that really well. And the two writers were themselves briefly city workers. Um, and so they they sort of brought in all their experience and, and also I think all their resentments of the city and, and sort of poured it into this um, HBO show. Yeah, you get a sense of why it's popular with like anyone who's had a corporate job. I'm curious why you think it's popular now, specifically now. I think the the, the sort of fascination with money and uh, you know powerful companies and the very driven individuals within those companies. I think that's kind of timeless. I mean, you can take it back to Wall Street or other sort of depictions on screen. I think what's what may have changed and what may be really interesting is the generational divide at the moment. So. I think people find young people in the workplace kind of like a very foreign species. Uh, I'm no longer that young. And I'm sort of slightly perplexed around some of the conversations that I had, you know, some of the language that's used. You know, do these people want to work like the last generation did? Do they want to make that trade off of uh, personal life for professional success? And so I I think anything that youth focused has a real appeal. I hadn't thought about it this way until my conversation with Henry, but industry is a little like a corporate version of Euphoria, the HBO show that dramatizes a group of American teenagers through high school. It's also a lot like Succession, the show based on Rupert Murdoch's family and its Machiavellian quest for money and power. All three of them offer quite a bleak perspective on people's ability to maintain their integrity. Henry, we had you on some months ago now to talk about succession and watching this show you can like kind of feel the similarities but it also feels kind of different from succession because it feels less like you're looking at people and thinking like where is the humanity in this person oh here it is in episode four episode eight and more like you're watching people's humanity get tested and get sort of stripped away (laughs) Um, yeah yeah what do you think i think the the comparison is hard to avoid, partly because the dialogue in both of them is so sharp. I mean, I think there are real differences. Industry has loads of sex. Succession mm-hmm. has has no sex, and it's quite it's it's sort of quite striking. Um, yeah, but here right. it's really young people, and we're, we're we're sort of shown their full excesses to a point that some viewers find unrealistic. But the writers insist <laughs> is is what their experience of the city was like. I mean, they're both shows that find real comedy in this stressful battles for power and influence and and this this kind of jostling between big egos. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that, um, uh, yeah, the irredeemable nature of the characters is a common mm. thread. You think you found someone in industry who you really like, and then they, they'll be distorted by the banking world. And yet what keeps you going is is the sort of the pace of the narrative and the, and the quality of the script, I think. Yeah. You know, one other thing that I like about the show, Henry, is we've reported a lot in the FD and a lot of a lot of publications have reported on how bad of a workplace environment the banking world is. But if you're not in it, it's kind of hard to visualize how all that stuff plays out, like why people are doing 14 hour work days and what inappropriate client meetings really look like and the drugs and the bullying. And when it's on screen, usually it's kind of glorified like Gordon Gecko and Wolf of Wall Street and that sort of thing. But I feel like this is a real exercise in show, <laughs> in show don't tell in a way that I haven't really seen in a show about the banking world before. Like it feels kind of true. You can get a sense of how you can get stuck in that world and the rush of it and the complicated dynamics and how boundaries get crossed and that sort of thing. Did you feel that way? Yeah, I th- I think that's right. And I think it's also it's it's picking on the city at a time of transition. So because it's after the financial crisis, because there's more 
regulatory scrutiny because banks are under pressure to sort of clean up their act, uh, both yeah. in terms of their balance sheets and and also their their sort of working practices. You know, there's this transition. So there are there's mental health support. There are rules around bullying. Right. The question is, to what extent can these characters who desperately want money, who desperately want success, to what extent can they ab- abide by these rules? Because yeah. ultimately, for some of them, it's a break on their ability to make money. And so, you know, if it takes being inappropriate to win a client or, to, you know, to make more money for your, for the bank and for yourself and, and therefore to get a, a permanent job or to, to get a promotion, well, you know, uh, why not do it? The arc of season two revolves around a venture capitalist named Jesse Bloom, played by Jay Duplass. The character has been compared to Amazon boss Jeff Bezos and billionaire investor Bill Ackman. Bloom pits the workers at the bank against each other. The central character there is a young woman named Harper. She's brought Bloom in, and now she finds herself kind of torn between this big fish she's caught as a client and the commands she's getting from her bosses. The tension comes to a head when Harper unwittingly helps Jesse Bloom short some stocks. Here's how the scene plays out. Joined by CEO, founder, and chief PM of Crotona Park Capital, Jesse Bloom. Thank you for joining us, Jesse. So Bloom, the venture capitalist, goes on a CNN roundtable to answer questions about this incredible amount of money that he made off of the pandemic. You were early on the right side of the trade after your comments, incriminatingly early. And the journalists are suspicious. Uh, Your CNBC appearance at the start of the pandemic is now historic. It was quite the performance, the voice catching, the fear. You deserve a Tony. (laughs) Wait. Meanwhile, as he's on TV, Bloom is texting Harper to buy certain stocks. And as Harper instructs her colleagues to go ahead and make the purchase, Bloom uses his TV appearance to influence the market. You were speaking earlier about the proliferation of big tech and its overreach into every corner of our lives. Anywhere else in this world, Amazon's purchase of FastAid would be waved through. Has an anti-competition inquiry. You probably recognize the voice of one of those journalists grilling Bloom on CNN. It's Henry. I wanted to know why he agreed to be on the show. So as proof that authenticity mattered to them, um, after you interviewed the writers for season one, they slid into your DMs with an ask. (laughs) Um, Can you tell me what happened? Yeah, I was coming back from like a book festival where I'd given a talk to a, you know, a depressingly small number of people. Um, so I was kind of not feeling world famous at this point. Um, but here was a, an offer. And they said, look, it's a bit of a strange one, one of the writers said. But, you know, would you be at all open to uh, taking a part in season two, essentially playing yourself? Mm. For me, it was like, absolutely, definitely up for this. Would be and yeah. because Yeah, what made you want to do it? Well, like, obviously... You know, everyone knows the reach of TV. Everyone knows the glamour of this kind of golden age of TV where you just see such beautiful dialogue and, you know, great, like, mesmerizing performances. But I think also for me, like, I have watched journalists being portrayed on screen and generally wanted to to throw something at the screen. I mean, (laughs) it sometimes is so unrealistic. And I think my particular example of this would be you have a journalist who's chasing down some corrupt politician mm-hmm. and they'll have gathered some evidence and they stand up at a press conference <laughs> and they say, you, sir, are corrupt and bringing down this country. And the whole thing kind of descends into uproar and the politician looks shocked and doesn't know how to act. Yeah, And like, 
that's just not how it happens. Like, if you ask that at a press conference, everyone would just yawn because it's like the easiest question to say, no, I'm not corrupt. I'm a yeah. you know, good, uh, you know. Yeah, it's interesting because in some ways, I don't know, at least um, I find that in journalism, <laughs> partially because of Hollywood's depictions of journalism, um, it makes for a lot of conspiracy theories. Like, people think that there are things happening behind the scenes that really, like, no one has time for, let alone <laughs> the capacity for or evil energy for. But also there are truths that come out and there's entertainment that comes out of like the process of, of finding a story. Um, so I think that what we expect of high-end drama is, is to stretch our possibilities so far mm -hmm. sometimes that it's hard to, you know, tarry that or tally that with the reality of journalism, which is often depicting things which are in plain sight, but which are still very mm -hmm. outrageous. And, you know, the time spans of which things have to happen in, in dramas are just not the time spans things happen in, um, in real life. So it's not something that you can, between episode one and episode two, you can um, Solve. Ha have, have all these developments. Right, right. Yeah. Henry ended up in two scenes in season two of Industry. One is a blink and you'll miss it appearance in episode two. He's interviewing Jesse Bloom on stage at a conference. And the other is that CNN scene. And that scene is, by the way, an example of something that might happen in actual journalism. Henry doesn't accuse Bloom of corruption on TV. He's sort of circling it because he doesn't know for sure. So, Henry, what do you think? Do you think this is one of those rare shows that gets journalism right? It does get right that we're often on the outside, you know, l looking out of a window, peering in, seeing something, but not quite being able to put our finger on it or not, not certainly not having the ability to, to prosecute yeah. um, these people and it, it takes patience and it takes sort of constant questioning um, and constant sort of raised eyebrows mm -hmm. um, at powerful people before you get a yeah. result. Yeah. Henry, I guess my last question is like, what's your sort of big picture take? Where do you place industry in the sort of 2022 TV canon? You know, I think it gets loads of things right about um, about why people go into certain careers, about, you know, how the culture of workplaces um, uh, really intrudes upon the personalities of, um, of of those just starting their careers, and you know how even good people who who go into a workplace or people with, who think they have certain boundaries or certain standards end up dropping those I I under pressure after a mm. few years. Yeah. Okay, uh, Henry. Thank you so much for being here. How should people contact you if they want to book you for a future <laughs> for a future show? <laughs> Yeah, just Twitter DMs. I mean, that's that's how all my best offers uh, arrive now. I mean, I have to say that, yeah, for every one TV offer, well, there's probably been a thousand people with zero followers offering me money transfers. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Um, but, I mean, the serious thing there is that, like, HBO in particular have this amazing history of casting people who aren't actors into roles. And so I do think that's like, that adds a nice frizzle to drama because... Um, you know, there is this test for for so much drama of whether it really stands up to people in the know. And yeah, it was really fun to try and see that yeah. myself. Henry, thank you so much. This was so fun. Thanks a lot, Lila. You can read Henry's stories about industry on FT.com. I've put them both in the show notes. Esther Perel is probably the most famous therapist in the world, which is not something a lot of people are famous for. She's a speaker, a best-selling author, a podcaster, 
And she's known for giving very clear language to complex psychological concepts and for helping us understand our relationships. I have been following Esther's work for years. I've interviewed her on the show a few times. And here's a quintessential Esther Perelism. When we ask one person to give us security, predictability, reliability, stability, dependency, and also adventure and mystery and unknown and discovery yeah. and excitement and passion and all of this. Seriously, we're asking one person to give what a whole village should provide. So diversify. Today, we're bringing you a conversation between Esther and a different host, Lucy Kellaway. Lucy has held many roles at the Financial Times, but she was especially beloved for her very funny column that criticized corporate guff, which is basically buzzwords that mean nothing. She actually left the FT a few years ago and is now a high school economics teacher. So here are Esther and Lucy on the FT Weekend Festival main stage, talking mostly about wanting too much from our romantic and workplace relationships. Enjoy. One of the things that you write about so brilliantly is how our expectations are sky high. Yes. And this, I imagine, applies to people of all ages. We expect so much from these relationships that we feel that we choose them. The longer we wait before that we choose them, the higher our expectations are. Now, you give such really lovely advice to people. But don't you sometimes feel like slapping the entire human race and say, lower your blinking expectations? No, I don't say lower them. I say diversify them. It's not the same. I think the expectations are what they are. But we don't, we, but we came from a model where our intimate relationships, which not, were not necessarily even called intimate relationships. I'm going back about 60, 70 years. That's your parents, your grandparents, and some of us. So I'm not going back very far. We came from what I like to call the, the production economy model of relationships and marriage. You know, sustainability, companionship, family life, children, social status. Then we added romanticism, affection, trust, intimacy, sexuality. We brought desire in to replace duty. Then we turned it into an identity economy. And we want you to help me become the best version of myself. And now we've gone yet another level up, which is that I want to also find you, my beloved, to be the one and only soulmate on this planet. And soulmate has always meant God. Mm -hmm. The one and only was the divine and not a human being. And why, when we want to experience ecstasy and wholeness and transcendence and meaning in this one relationship with this one person, as Robert Johnson, the analyst, says, we have collapsed the spiritual with the social. There's a great big piece of FT on this today, which is saying that office life as we knew it is still, employers are trying to bring it back, but it's slightly refusing to come back, which in my view is the biggest disaster for relationships at work. I mean, I adored the office and it's lovely being back here with FT people. It was absolutely the best thing. And it's failing to come back. So I wondered what you thought about working from home and all of this flexible working will have on relationships um, between colleagues at work. What, what are we losing? So, you know, what do you gain and what do you lose from working, you know, remote? I think that a certain age, and here I think the age factor and experience factor is very, very significant, can work more remote because they have retrofit. They have internalized 
Uh, they have relationships that pre-exist. They have a sense of how, who to talk to. I think it's worse for people starting out. I think what you lose is the serendipity. You lose the happenstance. You lose all the non-formality of relationships in the workplace. You lose meeting that person that suddenly finds an interest in you and becomes your mentor for life. You may say one, two, three words to somebody and then you get to the job, you get to the task, you don't spend too much time talking about the world, life or anything. And then when you're done, you disappear. It's like this. And I think over time, we are going to get a sense of what this does, which I don't think in four months since we really came out, we can already know. And what will it do? It's your best guess. Well, one of the things it's doing, it's very interesting, right? On the one hand, people are less at work. Most people want hybrid. There's things that they think they really don't have to go to work for, and there are many things that they think really are better done. But it's really tough to be in an office where the, your day, there's only four people on this huge floor. I mean, it feels awful. You know, it's like, why am I here? And there is no atmosphere, you know, the, the energy of an office. But at the same time, as we are less absent, our expectations of the workplace have risen exponentially. We don't want a resource manager. We want a relationship manager. We want a leader that understands what it means to live in times of crisis and global uncertainty. We want somebody who understands that we are not interested in work balance, life balance. We're interested in integrating our personal life into our work life. And that means that I want my company to attend to my psychological needs, my well-being needs, my existential aches, and my needs for belonging, all the while I'm not there. And so do you think, I hope from the way, I really hope from the way you say that, that you think that these expectations are absolutely ridiculous, they're no, not achievable. They're, they're not ridiculous. They may not be achievable, but they actually are not ridiculous because work and family are the only two hubs left since we don't have religion here and we don't have the traditional social structures and our institutions are crumbling, the only thing people have to give them that structure in life is their relationships and their work. And their relationships doesn't just mean their family relationships. I'm talking in the broad sense of how we live in relationships so that we don't just think that love and commitments belongs to romantic love. It's not a crazy thing. It's so understandable. My students... I've learned about anxiety through TikTok. TikTok says that if you find yourself doing this, or if you zone out a bit, you have anxiety. This is making them miles worse. Miles, miles, miles worse. I mean, it would be funny if it wasn't so serious. So by talking about mental health without understanding anything about it, half the young people in the world have diagnosed themselves about having a disorder. And this is really, really a problem. First of all, do you agree with this? And do, what should we do with our young people to give them more resilience and jolly well toughen up? <laughs> I know that's so un-PC, but I can see the average age is quite old here. <laughs> And I don't think you're cancelling types, otherwise I know you would cancel me, but you know, whatever. <laughs> Do I care? Come here. So the mental health crisis is really, on the one hand, very useful because it makes a lot of people pay attention to something that wasn't looked at before. But on the other end, it's a deviation. It's a deflection. That's the word. It's a deflection. Um, if people are depressed, if people feel despair, if people feel anxious, you, know, you need to be able to sit with them as parents, 
and as teachers and as therapists about the job market, about the, the loneliness that they are feeling in the midst of many other people, about the effects of social media on their sense of self, about climate crisis, about the war, about... It's like this. If you talk about these things and you tell them, we all are living... This is what I mean by the holding environment, leadership in a time of crisis. It's that you actually name it rather than looking at the symptoms. You know, the symptom is just a response to something. And that something is more societal and more collective. We don't want to help our children to become more resilient. Resilience is not a, a bunch of traits in an individual. Resilience is the ability to tap into the collective resources. And so in light of the big issues that are happening, we are dealing with a collective resilience. And if everybody goes at it alone, then we will be overwhelmed and depressed and school avoidant and phobic and OCD and, 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 and. But if we create a thing together where we understand what we are, how we maintain hope and joy and love in the direst of circumstances, then we will not have a mental health crisis. We will have a world in crisis with people that are coping. There is so much more to this conversation, and I've linked to the whole thing on YouTube in the show notes. But I did want to play you two of my favorite questions from the audience. So I wanted to ask you about the importance of sex as you get older in your 70s and 80s in terms of intimacy and closeness. Okay, let's talk a minute about sex. And I don't want to talk about sex 70s and 80s. I just want to talk about sex through the lifespan. But if you ask me, and this is what I wrote Mating in Captivity about, and this is what a lot of my work is about, is I am not so interested in what people are doing sexually speaking, but I am interested in the erotic, because the erotic is the poetics of sex. The erotic is what gives meaning to sex. The erotic is what makes you feel alive. Everybody knows the difference between a relationship that isn't dead and a relationship that is alive, between surviving and thriving. So... To do the sex as the, as the regular thing like that, it's not the point. The point is what is pleasure, what is connection, and how do you like it? And do you have a relationship that allows it to change so that you can do harder or softer or frequently, more frequently or less frequently as you like? That's what I would like us to talk about when we talk about sex rather than the doing sex you know, um, approach because that stuff you can measure, and so people and scientists love it. But my thing is more mystical, and it is a much more, it's a different quality that is not nearly productive, that you can't measure, but when you feel it, you know it. Hello, yeah. my question is, if we expect too much at the moment and we want the whole village in one person, then what should we reduce that to? What should be the minimum requirements? There are certain things you can have with a partner or partners, for those of you who live in more than one, there is a need for community, a need for many, many friends. Many couples lose their social connections. Most men in straight relationships lose their social connections. Their wives or girlfriends or female partners often become their minister of social affairs. <laughs> the worst thing that can happen is when they divorce in their 60s, they are often completely alone. You need a circle. And that, with, and that circle is intimate. It doesn't, and for some it's also sexual, but for others it's intimate. You need best friends. You need to maintain that whole thing around. You need to do things that you can't necessarily do in your relationship at certain stages because, because we want to reconcile two fundamental opposing human needs in these relationships today. I want security and adventure with the same person at the same time. 
That's a complicated thing. So you don't diminish your needs. You think about with whom, who needs to be here with us for that to take place. The nuclear family, I'm sorry to say, but it's a bit of a disaster. It's an overworked, overwhelmed system with two parents working with a lack of resources for which they have to pay way too much if they can afford it for these little schmurfs that are getting more attention than they ever got any time in history. Okay, we're ending there. On that negative note, Esther, that was amazing. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Before we go, I want to remind you that we have still got our listener call out live. We're challenging you to challenge us with one thing that you think most people would find very boring, but we could make interesting on the show. We've already gotten some really good ones. One person suggested we talk about the origin of paper plates, another about the history of salt. There's one asking why two wheels are more fun than four wheels. Just send us a topic that you want us to cover that seems kind of niche. We are actually missing some niche mysteries and some niche gossip. So if you have something like that, definitely send it in. There's a link in the show notes. You just have to tap it and it will bring you to a site where you can leave us a message from whatever device you're on. It's super easy and we might even play your message on the show. Don't overthink it. Just do it now. If you'd like to say hi in other ways, we love hearing from you. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. The show is on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And I am on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. You can keep up with the callouts and the cultural conversations that feed into the show on my Instagram. Links to everything mentioned today are in the show notes alongside a link to the best offers available on a subscription to the FT. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekend podcast, make sure to use that link. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my exceptional team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Molly Nugent is our contributing producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko, with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer. And special thanks go, as always, to Cheryl Brumley. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll find each other again next week.